Episode 3415 of the Survival Podcast, and that background noise is the uh, sound of feral homeschool children playing outside. Anyway, uh, what are we going to talk about today? We're going to talk about real estate investing, the risks and the rewards, and I guarantee you with the guests we have, we're going to have the no bullshit version of this. I I, I think back to when I was really young and just kind of coming up, and I would see these late night infomercials about Buy property with no money down. Get my secret report for 19 bucks or whatever, and you'd order it, and then you'd get this thing, and it basically said, go ask your rich uncle. That, by the way, I know you don't have for money, and if you give me 2500 bucks, I'll tell you how to really do this. And then you make up all kinds of artsy-fartsy bullshit that may or may not actually work loosely based on fact and legend. Um, we're not going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about building a business in the space of real estate in the real world. And my guest today is Matthew Sersley. If you're like, I think I know that name. He's been on before. You might know him as the Agorist Tax Advisor. He is an attorney, and uh, he does do some specialized work with tax planning, along with some other stuff, stuff as an attorney. But he's also a real estate investor, and he's here to talk to us about that today. We will get to that in just a moment. Before we do, let's hear from uh, our sponsors of the day today. Uh, sponsor of the day number one today, uh, number one today is Canine Academy. That is Joel Ryle's operation. Joel's a great dude, and he can help you learn to train your dog. And the way you teach somebody to train their dog is you train them. See, it's not actually that hard to train a dog. Dogs are pretty simple creatures. They operate under a certain set of rules. Different breeds have different characteristics. And all. But in the end, you know, you have core obedience, and a dog learns to sit the same way. They learn because you teach them how to do it, and you train them by creating a situation Controlling the situation and conditioning a response. Joel and I work together on that. We call it the three C's of dog training. And you can learn all of that and more at Canine Academy, where you can get the core basics training, which I recommend everybody at least start with that. And here's why. You want a dog that's going to be a great bird dog and hold point over quail, you start with core, core obedience. You want a good homestead dog that's simply not going to eat your animals, you start with core obedience. You want a dog you can take for a walk in the park and it doesn't run away, you start with core obedience. You want a protection dog that you can actually rely on to protect you and your family. You're going to do bite work and all that. You know what you start with? Core obedience. That's what you start with. So there are a lot of options in the uh, Canine Academy catalog, but I recommend everybody at least do the core obedience. It's going to translate into everything else that you ever want to do with your dog. I say it all the time, but it's because it's true. If you ask any really good dog trader, what is the most difficult species you have to work with? They'll say human beings. Because the dogs are easy, the humans are the hard part. Uh, you can learn to do this for yourself at canineacademy.com. Next up today, knifekits.com. I have been working with knife kits since 2010. It's 2023. That's 13 years. We're heading into our 14th year of cooperation with knifekits.com. They're a fantastic sponsor. They have everything you need to start making your own knives, or other cool stuff like all the stuff you need to make Kydex holsters and things like that. They do a discount for MSB folks. And just think about this. Again, 2010 to 2023, steadfast sponsor of the Survival Podcast. So it's definitely worth checking them out. If you've never checked out KnifeKits.com, 
I'd say maybe you should do that today. Christmas is coming. What a great thing to do. How about this? You got kids? Give them the kit, but then give them the real gift, the time with them to put the kit together and turn it into a knife. That's what your kids really want, guys. Trust me, as a guy that's grown ass adult, has a grown ass adult son, and now is uh, helping with raising grandchildren. The kids value the time with you more than any of the stuff. Check it out today, knifekits.com. Great way to do that, where you can have a hobby or a side hustle or a long-term profession, depending on what you want to do with it. With that, let's bring our special guest on, Matthew Sersley. Uh, Matt, welcome to the Survival Podcast again. Thank you. Glad to be here. Glad to have you with us, man. Um, for people that haven't... Uh, met you before before we dig into the subject can you just talk a little bit about how you know let's go back here in high school spacing out and shit and you end up in law school at some point and then you take this interest in advising people tax-wise and because i know it wasn't a straight path kind of how did that all progress for you and who is matthew uh so i'm an attorney i'm a husband i'm a father of three small children um it, when i was that kid in high school i actually wanted to be a math teacher so the, the the process of uh, changing my mind, basically getting into politics, going to law school um, to be to be that constitutional lawyer, no one ever actually becomes because there's no jobs there. <laughs> um, That's a something. And and literally the the tax advice stuff was um, it was 2020, and um, my day job I was doing personal injury work, and there was not a lot of car wrecks in 2020 for some strange reason. <laughs> so that business was not going so good. And uh, I basically, after being at your workshop in November, I said, I, I have to do something to build up a side income. I've, I've tried this before. Um, this time I'm not going to try this time. I'm going to do it. And I, I started my business. It was actually, uh, I got my first payment on January 8th of 2020. So just almost exactly three years ago now. And have been doing that ever since. How did you end up getting involved in real estate? Is this something that predates the, the kind of COVID pandemic? Or is it something that during that same period of time you started to move into? No, I, uh, I've, I actually wanted or I got into, into learning about real estate when I was still in law school. Okay. Um, one of the, the people I followed at the time was Dr. Gary North. And he was big on pushing people to look at real estate and, you know, make money somehow, but build wealth through real estate. Okay. Um, I bought my first house um, as an investment. I lived in one room. I rented out two of the other rooms to two friends of mine um, and based, you know, then split all the expenses with them. And so basically out of pocket, uh, I was out about $200 a month for the mortgage myself after the rent I collected. Okay. And then uh, it was a long time before I, I did a second house because buying a rental property is a lot harder than buying a house you're going to live in. Yeah. But I bought the first one uh, in 2015. And now I've uh, built, I've got three houses and I was a 1% or so owner in three different LLCs that own an apartment complex. Okay. Okay. So significant experience but not some giant huge massive portfolio one of these guys that's on tiktok on i have a private jet and you can too right just just a guy that's that, that's that's found what i i've always said 
the primary path to becoming a millionaire in the United States is through real estate in some way, shape or form. And it really is. And it's not one of those things that's just like a puffy language or something like there is 100 percent statistical data to back that up, that more people who started out lower income have risen up to the level of millionaire, multimillionaire through real estate than any other path in the United States. It, and, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, I, I think one of the reasons is, is because almost it's almost never fast. That's yeah. Yeah. Like, like, and that's one of those lucky people who, you know, you buy someplace and then like, you know, they announce the next day that they're, you know, building a subdivision or a, a new factory or something. So it a shoots football stadium, right. You know? <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's very slow and steady and it, it compounds upon itself incredibly well. Um, let's talk a little bit about what most people are probably thinking in their head right now. Yeah, I bet it was something you could easily do in 2015, but it's 2023. Have you looked at prices and interest rates? How do you respond to that to somebody that's not in the game now looking to develop a business of some kind and say, I'm writing off real estate because it's not a good time. I would tell them they may be right. Um, I, mean, it, I mean, certainly it was a lot easier in 2015. Um, it was a lot easier in 2010 than it was in 2015. Yeah. It was actually really easy in 2019. Got a little bit dicey in 2020 and 2021. Um, what I would say is there, real estate is, is one of the ultimate local market things. There is always some place in the country where real estate makes sense as an investment. There, sometimes it's most of the country and sometimes it's not much of the country, but you can find places to invest in real estate that makes sense. Um, but, you know, th if you are thinking, you know, you want to wait six months and it might be better in six months, you may well be right. I think, you know, and even it's funny when I when I signed up to be on this podcast, it was October. Okay. My answer to this question has changed in that two months. <laughs> okay. Um. But I think there are, there are certainly deals out there that make sense. There are lots of deals that don't make sense. So, you know, be a little bit fearful, be a little bit bold. And I think now is it, it's not the worst time in the world, right? It's not 08, which was a much worse time to invest in real estate. Yeah, it's probably a pretty good time to invest in real estate if you already did it and you have tenants. It's probably a really great time to have property that you purchased eight, ten years ago. You have tenants in today because, you know, I'm putting a little joke up on the screen for the people in the video. We won't share it with the audio folks. So they have to come check it out. But, you know, I'm sitting in a house right now that I have an interest rate on of something like 2.79 percent. Um, I've owned it for 10 years. I paid a fraction of what it's worth. And there are a lot of people trying to, you know, just get into a house, let alone become a real estate investor right now. But I've also always been of the opinion there's always deals. There's always good opportunities. It is just that there's probably a lot less of them and it might be harder. And because there are people out there who are experienced in the space, there's more competition because there's less to, to fight over. Because I remember even back in the quote-unquote good old days going to look at some properties and thinking, this is really under the radar. It's really not actually on the market yet. 
and you know you so you, you can't even get inside of you. You're just kind of doing a walk around, and then you, you bump into other <laughs> people doing the exact same thing. It's not like it was ever just oh you just show up by a house and, and put it up for rent. Like there is always some level of the 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 good cherry pick properties competition. So I, I'm guessing that one strategy is to look for the things that don't look so great, but you can make them great relatively easy. Yeah. So, so one of the, one of the best ways that you can get started is definitely buying some sort of distressed property or buying from a distressed owner okay. and, and making improvements. Now, buying from distressed owners is really hard these days because most people, they, they have that three or 4% interest rate. It's not necessarily that hard for them to make their payments. Yeah. So it's not like it was, you know, again, 2010 or 2009 when there are lots of people desperately trying to sell their houses. But it's expensive to repair houses. I mean, I know I just had a $3,000 repair on my house. I can afford it. A lot of people can't. Yeah. And so if somebody, especially if it's a safety issue, you know, it's, it's Pennsylvania and you can't get your heat to work, you may need to leave your house. Well, someone else can maybe come in and, and buy that place. And some people see that as predatory, but I see you're solving that a problem for that person. They're going to sell they, to somebody. It's not like you went and broke their air conditioner or their heater so that you could buy their house. That would be predatory. Right. And, and right now they're paying a mortgage plus maybe rent someplace else. At least you're making it so they don't have to pay that mortgage anymore. Yeah. Um, so, no, it, it that's one way to do it. There's also um, – I mean, there, there's lots of different things. And, yeah, as you mentioned, there's lots of people who sell different products and how to do it. A lot of them – are actually at least somewhat legitimate. Like this yeah. does work. It just doesn't work for everybody every time. I think a lot of the how-to uh, material is valid. The marketing oversells the ease, I guess is the way that I put it. And like I said, I'm sure you, you know, you're a bit younger than me, but not that much. I'm sure you remember the time period I'm talking about before the internet really exploded and infomercials were still the primary way that people like that marketed their product. And, and I, 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 when I told that story in the intro, I literally did buy like a $20 startup package or something. And, and that was like, when it came to the how to buy with no money down, one of the ways was go see your rich uncle. And, and it, it didn't say if you have a rich uncle, go. Yeah. It, it basically assumed that everybody had a rich uncle somewhere that would be. And I'm thinking if I did have a rich uncle, which I don't. And I did go to him and say, hey, I want to buy this house and, and you come in and be a landlord with me. He probably would have told me to go piss off. Right. Like because I was like 22 years old at the time. Right. So I think there is some validity in that. I also think that like Gma Merkel's just said the fall has started. And she's not talking about the season. Right. She's talking about the cycle. And I think that might be the case. So what it might be a really good idea for people to be doing right now is stockpiling some capital so that as these opportunities come, you can capitalize on those opportunities because I think you probably agree with me. There is only so much longer that this shimmed up phony economy facade can be held up, though I do think it's going to be a different real estate cycle than it ever has been because until like right now I can sell my house for half a million dollars. Easy. And I can take about 350,000 profit out of that. And the only thing I can do is go buy another house just like it and pay more money per month. That, that's mm -hmm. kind of my option here. If I was not an investor, but if I'm actually like going to move to another house, 
without creating some sort of geographic arbitrage, I can't better my position. And I think that's like, that's the difference this time versus 08, 09. People were trying to get out of where they were into a better situation. So they were begging to get out. And now I think they're basically they're like a cat on a, on a log floating down a river with their nails dug in. And they, no matter how bad this is, any other option is going to be worse. So I think that it might not be the same type of unwinding we've seen in the past, but there will be some unwinding. There definitely will be. And, and again, like the fall has already started in certain markets. There are markets that are down something like 20% yeah. in the past year. Uh, there are markets that are up 15% in the past year. Mm-hmm. You know, it, all business is local, but I don't know of any business more local than real estate. I mean, even yeah. the, the, the neighborhood you're in can be make or break. You can be in a, a relatively small town. So I'm, so, I'm still talking like 50, 60,000 people. Mm-hmm. One factory opening or closing can completely, like the rest of the state completely decoupled from it can completely change that, that local market. And, and even something like in, like in Dallas, yeah, like Dallas is a big city, but if somebody, you know, it, you know, uh, the, the Louisville Frisco area is booming. Oh, it's exploding. Absolutely. And, and it's because, you know, there's all these new businesses and businesses are relocating there. And like, it definitely has been good. The, the, the value of the property has gone up tremendously. Whether that's a good thing or not depends on if you're trying to sell or if you're paying the property taxes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, but it's like, there, even again, even in a big town, like if something happens nearby you in that town, it matters. Yeah. Yeah. Or if somebody puts in, like, right over here right now, we have a very large development going in that's all leased properties, luxury houses, and I wouldn't live in one. But they have sure it, – it, it's it's basically like apartments without joined walls is what these things look like. And they, they look to me like they're being built – and I don't think they'll look like this when they're done. Right now, there's a lot that are in sticks, so you can look at the construction. I'm going, that is some cheap-ass build. I think it's going to have a real nice facade on it. So in that particular area mm-hmm. over there towards Saginaw, that big development, when it starts putting people into homes, is going to is going to uh, increase inventory. And that may have a somewhat suppressionary effect if they don't have enough growth to offset it. I personally think with what's going on in Texas right now, for a while anyway, we'll continue to experience that growth. But, you know, that same analog could be somewhere else where they don't have the influx that we do here. Yeah, that's definitely true. So um, you, I guess, are primarily taking the landlord approach. So you buy the property, you put a tenant in it, you let somebody else's money pay the equity up in your property. You create cash flow. We'll get into some tax advantages to that later. But are there other ways that people may want to look at this instead of being a landlord? Because the one thing, I've been a landlord. It's lucrative. It's also if you get the wrong tenant, it's a pain in the ass. And some people maybe don't want to be in that situation. So are there other approaches here? Yeah. So first of all, the only time I was the actual landlord, like dealing with the tenant was when I bought that first property and I was living in the house. Every house I've bought since then, I've had a property manager Uh, because definitely, you know, I, I, I'm I'm a busy guy. I have a full-time business. I have a, full-time job. I have a family. I don't have time to deal with management. So there is always hiring someone. Yeah, that cuts into the profits, but if I can't do it without that, it's infinitely better. 
Um, my apartments are also totally different. I'm not actively involved in any of the apartments. I am a minority owner, 1% limited partner that I get a monthly email and a quarterly email about what's going on. And about once a year, uh, there, there's something where I meet with the general partners running the thing, but I'm totally passive. Like I, I don't, I can't make any decisions, even if I wanted to. Sure. Sure. There's other things you can do. Um, I know that there are people who do raw land investments. You know, they'll, they'll buy a piece of land, and especially if you have some pretty good idea that something is coming through in the near future, it can really go up a lot in value. Uh, and that can be done by buying the land, or it can be done by buying an option to buy the land, which says, you know, for three years, five years, ten years, you can buy the land at this price. Um, I, I know one guy that he's got something like 400 options on land. He ends up, have, you know, three-quarters of them never get done anything with and he only does about 20 a year but he makes several hundred thousand dollars a year by having a pre-existing contract in place three or four years later the lads go a lot more and he basically sells the option to somebody else yeah yeah i get that and um, that's kind of a that's kind of a low risk gamble mm-hmm. because what what that guy would tell you tell him well you know like 80 percent, 70 percent of your options expire and you just gave money away and he'll probably turn around and tell you, yeah, but the 30 to 40% made me all the money and then all the other money. So I don't care. Like I'm, I'm spreading wide enough that I know enough will hit to make it worth my investment. Exactly. And, and again, like he's like, it's, it's nearly a full-time job for him. Like he spends about 30 hours a week researching stuff, looking for stuff, meeting with people. Like it, it's not a passive investment by any means for him. Um, you know, there, there's commercial real estate. I am not a fan of commercial real estate right now. I think, um, like that is definitely one of the things I'm not even sure how you can possibly make money in commercial real estate directly. Like it's one thing you have a business. So you buy the business that your own business is going to, or you buy the building your own business is going to be in. There's some cool stuff you can do with that. But just like, I, I can't imagine doing most commercial real estate except if you have a whole lot of money and not a lot of time, there's something called a triple net lease. And like Walgreens loves doing this. So Walgreens will go out, they'll buy land, they'll build a Walgreens, and then they'll sell the land to an investor to get all the money back. And then they'll pay for, they'll pay you rent, they'll pay the taxes, they'll pay the utilities. And, you know, you basically you'll make, you know, typically six to seven percent cash flow per year plus you own the property now they have a you know contractual right to basically continue renewing the lease forever yeah um but again like that's that's something very different when it's you know a thing like that's something i know people who do so it's a guaranteed tenant and i own the land and they own the building and the infrastructure and all of that right correct and that's walgreens is probably not going to close down a new store anytime soon i mean it's and if they do, you know, you own the building still. Like, there's other things you can do with that building. So, like, there's, there's no guarantees ever, of course. Yeah. Um, you know, that's certainly not the most lucrative. Again, you're not going to make the 20 to 30% per year some people make in real estate with that. Yeah. Um, but you're probably not going to lose 20 to 30% per year either, which can happen if you get unlucky or screw up. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, then you're relying on um, – the people behind a company the size of, of Walgreens to pick a good commercial location. 
And mm-hmm. they're whether they get it right all the time or not, they're probably better at it than you are. I mean, that's the way I would look at it. And that's, that would be somebody with a significant bankroll there because you're talking about a commercial property. It's probably prime as well. So the thing about that is if that store did close, you're sitting on a piece of prime commercial property unless you buy it like in the declining part of town, which I just I just wouldn't do that. I think it's if this is one of the things I, I see as a problem for people when they're investing and it's not just real estate. It's anything they're investing in. As soon as they start thinking it's an investment, what should happen in a person's mind is they should be looking for every detrimental component to it, every risk that there is. And they should be, if anything, if they're magnifying anything, they should be magnifying the risk. But it's not what happens. They magnify and they accentuate the good because they want it to be a good investment. And I think that, like, if you're investing, you should probably be turning down eight for every eight to nine for every one that you say yes to. Yeah, that actually um, segues into something I wanted to talk about directly. So, again, I, sure. I'm part of a large group of individuals who we raise money to buy apartment complexes, we fix them up. The goal is usually sell them within about five years. And like it was not uncommon it, for people who were buying these things in 2015, 2016, 2017 to get a 100 to a 150% return in three years. Well, that type of profit brings in a lot of people. Yeah. And you got to trust the people running the deal to make sure that they're, you know, actually running it right. And so there have been that I know of eight apartment complexes with over 60 units in them foreclosed in Houston this year. Five of them were run by the same one guy running the deals. I knew him. I, he pitched me on two of those deals. Okay. And absolutely, like the reason I didn't invest with him was he was very pie in the sky. You know, hey, you know, everyone's making money. This can't go wrong, yada, yada, yada. I'm out. Yeah, I'm done. And, and it's like, and of those five, the investors got back nothing on the foreclosure in four of them. Mm-hmm. And in the fifth, they got about 4% of their investment back. Mm. Millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars invested with this guy. Gone. So I, I'm absolutely like, especially when you're working with other people and trusting other people. You know, trust but verify, and maybe don't trust that much. <laughs> yeah. Um, but on the other hand, I'll say, man, when I bought my first property and, and the house that I own, they're out of state. Like, they're, they're all in Tennessee. Okay. And I'm in Texas. And so when I pulled that trigger and, and wrote a check for a building I'd never seen with a company that had, you know, was selling it to me and then was going to manage the property, that was a scary couple of weeks when, when I pulled that trigger and, you know, was waiting to see how it turned out. Yeah. You know, again, I, I, it was a prudent decision. I knew what a lot of the risks were. I knew what a lot of the benefits were, but like it's, it, if you're not a little bit worried, especially your first time, I, I think you are probably not taking it seriously enough. Yeah. Yeah. What are your thoughts on short-term rental properties like the Airbnb Vibro thing? Like I've seen that work really good for people and I've seen it work really bad. I've also seen it do really good things for smaller areas that are not overly saturated. And I've seen it absolutely ruin places where the people that actually work there could never afford to live there again because they've driven the property. up. So it's like, it's, it's kind of all over the map, but I think that, 
in the right place, right situation, kind of recession resistant because there's no such thing as proof area, it may be an option. So short-term rentals are really complicated because you, you don't have the stability of a long-term rental. Like you never really know, like even again, with the short-term rental, yeah, maybe somebody loses a job, stops making payments, yeah. but in general, like it's pretty easy to budget. I, you know, okay. The rent is a thousand dollars a month account for vacancy account for repairs, whatever, you know, I should be, I should consider $800 a month and that's easy to budget. You know, I, I have a guy, there's a guy I know who has a, a, um, a house on Galveston that he does via Airbnb and he partly bought that so he could use it. But like, you know, even using it a, a whole lot, it's vacant, you know, 48 weeks out of the year. And that's been really good because lots of people like to go to Galveston and, you know, stay in, in the beach house instead of try to find a hotel, which good mm-hmm. luck or, you know, stay two hours away and have to drive in every day. Um, but like, Literally, something like seventy to eighty percent of his revenue comes from Memorial Day to Labor Day. Sure. So, like, you got to worry about budgeting on that. And like, again, if there's a really bad storm forecast, you have a bunch of cancellations, and you, you know, may not make a whole lot of money that year. If there's just again, maybe the tornado doesn't even or hurricane doesn't hit you, but if it maybe it's going to hit you, that could cost you the whole year's profits. Uh, the thing that really worries me is the number of people who, again, like it was kind of almost like the, the dot com in the 2000s. Yeah. This was the new thing, and everyone was rushing into this thing. And again, because of a lot of factors like the inflationary period and the generally, on the surface at least, a good economy, it was hard to lose money doing it for the first couple of years. Um, I. What really, really I dislike is like, I think it's far m- more important for you to treat it as a job than some, than an investment. Yeah. Like with, again, with my, even the houses I own with a property manager, you know, I spend more time on them than I do with my apartment investments, but like, it's not 10 hours a week. If I was doing short-term rentals, I would, you know, be spending a lot of time working on the marketing, a lot of time, you know, Constantly and you have at, to, you have to yeah. like reputations, everything. I know everywhere we travel anymore, we do Vibro or Airbnb. I have not stayed in a hotel other than like when we're on the road, we need a place right now because we need to stop. It just, to me, it's a better experience, but I'm always reading reviews. I'm, I'm shopping, you know, my wife will find 10 properties in the area we're going. And then we sit there and we diddle through them and we look for what looks best for us cost analysis and opinion of people who've rented the property in the past. And so if you fall to second place, <coughs> you go to zero. We're not staying at your place. I mean, it's that simple. The, the other thing is, I think it's a lot riskier because it's hard to get harder to get out of. Yeah. Like if, if you're buying a rental property to do a long-term investment, you're usually buying in a poor neighborhood it's not going to be too hard to sell that to somebody else who just wants to live there probably. But the very nature of Airbnb, most places, most of the time you're buying in nice areas, you're buying in expensive areas. And especially if it's someplace Airbnb is popular, the, the prices have gone up so much from Airbnb investors that if you decide suddenly, Oh, this isn't working. 
you're not going to get your price back. Mm. Yeah. Um, so again, just kind of looking at what could go wrong, you know, again, God forbid one of my houses in Tennessee, I could sell within 60 days pretty easily. Yeah. Right now, maybe faster. Um, but like, I, like, I could do it in probably 20 days if I was willing, like if I was desperate and willing to take yeah. a haircut yeah. uh, on what it's worth. But it's like, I could get a good fair market value for it within 60 days, but yeah. an Airbnb investor it might take you six months to sell if you have a problem. And the problem could be I'm losing money on this deal. It's not making the money I thought it would. So it's to me, that's it's, it's a more advanced thing. I would definitely say that is not a place to start with unless you know a lot about it. Yeah. Like if you're in hospitality and you already you know, know a lot about this sort of stuff, or even you know if you're working as a property manager for somebody else with this sort of stuff, like going with what you know is never a bad idea, I think. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, to me, this should not be your first thing. Like, get get your feet wet, and then move into this when you think you're ready. What I've seen people do, what makes the most sense to me, is they're in an area with a reasonable amount of of flow of people that need a place to stay. They own ten, fifteen, twenty acres. They they sequester off an acre, and they throw like a brand new eighty thousand dollar mobile home on it. It's really nice. And their payment on it is like equal to a truck payment. And if nobody stays in it this month, they don't care. They've increased the value of their property. They were able to use other people's money to do the install and whatever. And all the money that comes in is gravy. Like I've seen that work for people, but I also see like the other side of risk. So people listening to this, if they're thinking people, they might be like, you know what? There's a lot of people that go to cities like Dallas or Austin on business and any places to stay. And this is becoming more and more popular to do Airbnb for business travelers, not just recreational travelers. That sounds great, but I'm sure you know what's going on in Dallas where they're basically trying to ban Airbnbs in neighborhoods where people took that approach. And sure. A lot of the people like I'm in town for two weeks on business. I'd rather stay in a house than a, you know, a, a, a Ramada suites or something or spring Hill or something like that. But there's also like, you know, it happens and this is why they want to ban it. Like all of a sudden there's like 15 people in there, cars up and down the street, parties going till three o'clock in the morning, house parties at an Airbnb. And the residents are going, this is not what we signed up for. And Dallas City Council's tap danced around it, but they look like they're pretty much going to put the kibosh on it. So then just think if you're holding 10 Airbnb properties in Dallas proper and they put a law in that shuts you down. Doesn't yeah. sound good to me. No, and, and there's two other things to worry about, even like a big city like that. One is which is you're probably not the only person with that idea. <laughs> right? So like if, <laughs> if, You know if, why if, I'm laughing? Because not just real estate. <laughs> how many people come to you? I got this great idea. And like they tell you, yeah, dude, you're dude. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying you're not the only like don't tell no one. Oh, okay. <laughs> and and like on the one hand, like the fact there's competition is good, it means it's yeah. viable. But if, you know, there's, you know, 30 people doing this versus 5,000 people doing this, it's going to work differently. The other thing is business travelers don't travel as often these days. With things like Zoom, business travel is way, way down. And I don't think it's ever coming back. Not to where it was. So the the only, again, like there are some places where, you know, I, I stayed at an Airbnb Denver that was very near the downtown area. It was not actually that nice of a home, but it wasn't terrible, and it, it did what I needed it to do. Yeah. And I think that um, 
is always going to be a decent investment. Yeah. But I, I think I think the main market's going to always be the uh, the the vacationers is where the money's going to be at. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And like I said, there's always those risks that people need to factor in. Um, you're not really a big fan of the concept of paying down mortgages and full on 100% cash ownership. Can you talk about that for a bit? So I think I think it makes sense to pay down mortgages once you're done buying new properties. Okay. But when you're building up your investments, basically it's math. The, the vast majority of money you're going to make in real estate is going to be from the appreciation on the property. You know, the cash flow matters. The other things matter. But with the very limited exceptions, the way you're going to make money is you buy the place for, again, maybe $100,000 and then you sell it for $200,000. Well, if you put down 20% on a house worth $100,000 and it doubles in value, you just made five times your money. Correct. But with no note, you just doubled your money. And so just the, the very fact of paying it down instead of you know buying an, an, another property instead with that money, you're not going to have those benefits of appreciation. Uh, the other thing is, and this is something... Um, I learned from one of my mentors in real estate, at some point when you have a really big mortgage on a property, you sometimes have an ally if something goes wrong in the bank. You know, if a tornado comes through and damages your house yeah. and you've got, you know, 75% mortgage and your insurance company's not paying, the bank may sue the insurance company. Oh. But if you're, you know, 10% oh. – still owed now you got to sue the more the insurance company yeah your bank yeah that's the old line that if 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 i owe you a thousand dollars i have a problem but if i owe you ten million dollars you have a problem exactly right? so if, if i'm carrying enough uh of a mortgage and the bank looks at that and goes this should be covered but it's not i call from jack spirico to the bank with my lawyer matt is going to get your ass means this much, but a call from Wells Fargo that says our team of fucking lawyers are going to get your ass, that starts to mean a little bit more. Exactly. Um, and the the final thing is like people are like, well, but you know, I'll, I'll make more money over time. And it's like, you won't because the return of a, uh, the return on your equity is zero. Correct. The equity Correct. you have has nothing to do with how much money you make on the project. And so I would much rather have $100,000 of equity in five properties than in one property. Agreed. It's also so a, risk, a risk assessment too, right? If I have all my equity in one property and something goes really south with it, all my equity is at risk. If my equity is spread out against five properties, any one property only represents 20% risk to my invested capital and equity. Exactly. So again, if you're, if you're done buying new properties – it can make sense to start paying them off because now you know, once you don't have the mortgage, your, your cash flow amounts go way up. It's easier to have a passive income to retire on. Mm -hmm. But my opinion is as long as you're buying, uh, it's a no brainer. And we'll come to this a little later, but there's also some tax advantages uh, that can actually come from not paying it down as quickly. Sure. Sure. No, that that's absolutely the case because we'll, we'll get into taxes here in a second. But yeah. Um, what are like, one of the things I like about you is you're not going to spit polish a turd, right? You're going to tell us the truth. 
And I find that sometimes we learn the most from hearing what people did that they wish they didn't do. So are there maybe some mistakes or problems you've made in your investments or mistakes you've seen other people make that you would say, don't do this? Yeah. So the the first and most important uh, thing to avoid is you can't be a nice guy okay. as, a, as a landlord. I agree. I have seen more investors get in trouble by not evicting somebody who needed to be evicted than almost anything else. Um. Like it, it's not a charity, <laughs> you know, it, it's got to be a business because you've got to make it work. And if somebody's either they're damaging the property or they're causing problems or they're not paying the rent, you got to get rid of them. Um, the, the second biggest mistake I think most people make is not getting a property manager soon enough. I think if you live in the area, managing your first unit or two units for a year or two to learn about it makes a lot of sense. But at some point, you can't scale that. Like you don't, you cannot have a full time job and manage twenty units. And so, at some point, if you want to scale up, and real estate really works a lot better when you do scale up, you just have to get a property manager. But I've seen so many people, you know, trying to save that property management fee, wait for years and years and years, Mm. and and it's kind of penny wise and pound foolish in my mind. Um, the third, and this is kind of a smaller mistake for lots of like, oh, I don't want to own a rental property I wouldn't live in. Frankly, I don't own a single rental property I would want to live in. Yeah. Um, for a lot of reasons, smaller, older, not as nice properties actually make a lot more money when you're renting. You know, it's pretty hard to buy a $400,000 house in Dallas and make money renting it. There's a lot of $200,000 houses in Dallas that are, you know, yeah, not bad areas of town, but poor areas of town where the numbers make a lot of sense. And but so it's like, remember, you're not going to live here. And this kind of goes back to treat it like a business. Run the numbers. You, you're never going to be the person living there, God willing. Um, so do that. I will say I've been very lucky in my investing. You know, some real estate investors have all these horror stories. We both heard Nicole Soss talk about some of her uh, special tenants. I've only really had one bad situation so far. Um, and that was had a tenant who had been in my tenant for like four years. Um, it was, you know, 2022. He had been there all through COVID. I did get a little bit lenient during COVID because you had to be. Yeah. But all my tenants, even if they were late one month, they always made it up by the next month. And then this guy, he just didn't pay anything one month. And we basically told him, hey, you've been here for a long time. You know, COVID's kind of over, but, you know, as long as you, you know, make it up by the end of the next month, you'll be fine. Yeah. Well, he just moved out on December 31st without telling us. And he turned off the utilities. So the pipe rose. Okay. And by the time we figured out he was gone, it was about the 7th of January, and now the pipes had unfrozen. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Yeah, we learned what happens about with that in uh, about two years ago, didn't we, in Texas? Yep. And so it Money. was, I mean, again, thank God for insurance, because the insurance company paid something like $70,000, because they had to replace every bit of wall, every bit of flooring, every bit of carpeting, um, practically almost repiped the house 
Um, so, you know, it took almost three months to get the work done. Now I had insurance that covered some of the lost rent, but not all of the lost rent. And I, I was still out, you know, my, my deductible, which was $5,000. So this probably cost me nearly eight, nine grand. Um, but again, if I hadn't had the insurance, I'd walk away from the house, right? It's like, there's no way I'll ever make that money back if I have to fix that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's again, I, I, I know I've been lucky. Eventually I'll have a tenant who tears up the house. Probably it's just going to happen. Um, and that's again, another reason not to put all your eggs in one basket that, you know, having it, it's, it's real diversification to me to have multiple properties. Um, if nothing else, just, it's nice when a tenant, you know, when one of the places is vacant, you know, having the other rent coming in to help pay off that mortgage mm. on, on the vacant one. Like I go getting the first rental property is a lot harder. And when it's vacant, it really sucks. Once you've got a couple of properties, as long as they're not all vacant at the same time, it's a lot easier. Gotcha. Gotcha. So what are some practical ways people can get started? I mean, people watching this may be like, you know, is this something I can actually do? Like what would be some first steps? So there's a couple of different ways. Um, the first way is kind of do what I did. Find a place you are willing to live and rent out the space to somebody else. Um, because mortgage rates are lower when you occupy the home down payments are lower when you occupy the home. Um, there's, you know, there's a lot of times you can get a mortgage at three and a half percent down payment instead of 20% down payment. If you're going to live there. Correct. Uh, now, you know, that's not great if you're 40 and have a wife and kids necessarily, cause they don't they probably want people living there. Yeah. But you know, for a young person trying to get into this, especially that can be good. Uh, one of my mentors actually started off by buying a fourplex, a quad. He lived in one unit and was renting out the other three. And basically, the math worked out that those three people paid the, the whole mortgage. But because it, it was four units or less, it qualifies as a residential purchase. Okay. And again, he got in for three and a half percent. That's interesting. I didn't know that. So you could four units or less that can be residential. Okay. And so now fourplexes, like there basically aren't any in Dallas. There's a lot of duplexes. There's some triplexes. But that can be another way to get started. And you only need to live there for a year to count as being owner occupied and you, you can move out earlier if something comes up, but yeah, that can be, if you're planning to do that, that's mortgage fraud. Don't do that. Yeah. Um, but again, what this guy did is he lived in the first place for 18 months, did a cash out refinance to buy the second place that he then moved into and did the exact same thing. Now um, I think there's a loophole there too. Like, cause this is what I did. I bought a property I ended up renting it to my niece and, and her husband. I didn't buy it as a commercial property. I didn't buy it as a primary residence. I bought it as a second home, which still had far better terms than a commercial property. Yeah, that's it's, it's better terms. Um, I would be very careful what I signed. Yeah. Because again, that, that depending on what you signed, that may be fraud. So be careful on that. Yeah. Um, other ways to get started are, you know, again, find that diamond in the rough, that place that it looks terrible, but it's, it's kind of surface level issues. 
you know, find a place that you can fix up, maybe fix and fit it yourself or fix it up and rent it out yourself um, can be a really good, good way to start. Now, what some people they, have... One thing I've seen people do just real quick with the, the rooms or the duplexes is a lot of... And generally, they come from a little bit more money with mom and dad when they're doing this. But I've seen quite a few college students. I'm going to have to live near this school for four years. And instead of renting, they become a landlord and they have a guaranteed base of people who need to rent space. And so their roommates are actually their tenants. Yep, that can be in the right area with the right college because you don't want the college to shut down or something. Yeah. Um, yeah but that can be a really effective way to get started. And you tend to actually have less cash flow issues because most of those places, basically, you pay the rent by the semester. Like you yeah. get the college loan and you just transfer the money directly over so you're not collecting rent every month. So, you know, I, I, I will say that yeah, okay. today it's much harder to get started if you have time but no money. Like five years ago, it was a lot easier. Okay. If you have money but no time, find people you can work with. Again, that's at some point what I started doing with the, the apartment investing. I don't find any of those deals. I have made contacts with people where they are into finding apartments that they're going to kind of the equivalent of a fix and flip, basically, but it's a little more complicated than that. And they're going to do everything. And I just say, yes, I'm willing to put money in. No, I'm not willing to put money into this deal. Um, and by the way, be, be careful. Like on these sorts of things, you got to deal with the SEC. And it's like the, if, if you're trying to be one of the people running these deals, you can get into a lot of legal trouble if you don't dot your I's and cross your T's. Yeah. Yeah. But that is one way to get started if you have lots of time and not a lot of money. And it doesn't have to be a huge, you know, 200 unit apartment complex. Uh, one of the people I know, he started off buying a 24 unit apartment complex okay. where he raised the money from basically two local investors and one family member who had a little bit of money. And this guy came up with about five grand of money on his own just because they weren't willing to do it if he didn't put anything into it. And then he was doing a lot of the work on it. And it worked out. And again, this is the way he, he didn't need a lot of money to do this. In fact, he had terrible credit and it didn't matter on a commercial loan. They don't care what your credit is. Okay. I mean, they kind of care, but overall, like, again, it's, it's, it's not you buying it. It's the LLC you're setting up buying it. So mm -hmm. all they care about is, is there collateral somewhere Okay. that again, these other people put up, not what is your personal, you know, credit, so again, that, that does not work in all markets. Like you're not going to make money in New York or LA in, a, in doing this. Yeah. And again, you're probably not going to make money in New York or LA doing real estate in general, but especially kind of the, the tornado belt, Oklahoma, Kansas, Texas, Arkansas. Um, these are areas where there's lots of people moving in. There's lots of apartment complexes that, you know, somebody's owned for 20, 30, 40 years, been a mom and pop owner probably hasn't made a lot of improvements. And if you can put together a pool of people looking to invest, that can be a great way to get started. And again, like it, it is possible to buy with no money down of your own. And there are, I know thousands of people 
who have money, they want to invest in real estate. They just can't find the deals themselves and don't have the time. Okay. So it's doable. It's just not call your rich uncle and ask for a check for 75 grand. That's like, Correct. That. It, I mean, it, it's like, you're probably going to spend two to three years building up the network to do it. And a couple test cases too, because if, if you come to me for my money on a business deal, first of all, if you say, don't worry about it, we're already done. Um, I talked about this recently with like, we all had that one dumb friend in, in, in high school that you could talk into doing really stupid things. And so you did, and he was entertaining and he was a friend and he was part of it, but he was also dumb and everybody knew he was dumb. And when he said, we're going to go do a thing and you're like, I don't know about this, Mikey. And he's like, Oh, don't worry about it. That's it. Right. The minute those words come out, that means you better worry about this thing. Um, but if my next, if you, as long as you're not doing that and you're not setting off all kinds of red flags, where have you done this before? Where's your portfolio? Where's your KPIs? Like, that's what I'm going to ask you. Like, I want to see on paper your projections. I want to see a track record. If you do not have those, I can think you are Mother Teresa plus Gandhi together, and I will bless you, and I will back your charities, but I'm not giving you my investment money, right? Like, no. <laughs> yep. So the, the, really, the good way most people get around this is they'll partner up with somebody else who's, who's already done it. Before. Done it. Yeah. So like the very first apartment complex we invested in, um, it was some people who had, had already done it before. And actually, small world, my, my father had worked with one of the guys like 30 years before. Um, but the second one, it was the people who were doing most of the work. It was their first deal. But they had another guy involved who put in about $400,000 of his own money into the deal who had done 12 deals. Okay. And we knew that guy and we knew he was not going to, again, he wasn't day to day running it, but he was there if something went wrong to help out. That made us a lot more comfortable working with these other people who it was their first time that they were involved. So, I mean, as, as with many things, who you know matters. Yeah. Like build up that network. Build up that network. It's always good advice. Um, And by the way, that's another thing you should be doing now. Like save money. Educate yourself, build your network. There are so many meetup groups out there that want to do this stuff, and some of them are a waste of time. But I've heard of $20 and $30 million deals coming out of meetup groups where just two people met each other, they liked each other, they put their investment groups together, and literally bought an over $20 million apartment complex with someone they'd only known for a couple of months. But they met at a meetup. Yeah, does the partnership make sense and does the deal make sense? Those are your two sides. And the I, what you just said there, that's good advice always, and not just in real estate, in all things. Save your money, build your network, and educate yourself, right? That's kind of the secret to life right there in three bullet points. Now, you're a tax guy. Now, one of the things that's always attracted me to real estate is there are incredible tax advantages when people oh Trump doesn't pay any taxes well first of all he does but the reason relative to income and cash flow he pays so low of taxes is because he's in the real estate business and the real estate business is a great way to have cash flow and low tax footprint at the same time you talk about some of the tax advantages that there are yeah I will say especially like passive buy and hold real estate investing is the gold standard of income with little or no taxation It is very, very possible to have an income of hundreds of thousands of dollars a year and not pay any taxes on that if it's from real estate. The first thing is 
what is called depreciation. And a lot of people get confused. Like, I thought it was appreciating. How can it appreciate and depreciate? And that's a fair question. Yeah. But depreciation is basically the thing wearing down. And when it's a rental property, you get to basically take the cost of the house, not the land, just the house, and deduct that uh, at over 27 and a half years. And especially on a house with an 80% mortgage on it, and you've got, you know, insurance payments and everything, you're cash flow positive, but after that appreciation, you're probably not. And so all that cash coming in, it's going to be tax-free. Now, there are ways you can even use those losses to lower other income. So, for example, I know, and this is through apartment investing, uh, but she's a really cool woman. She's actually from Russia and has become like the biggest capitalist of all time. Um, her husband is a surgeon making over $300,000 a year. They went three years paying zero income tax on his income because of her real estate. Now, this year, they didn't buy anything. They don't have the, the bonus depreciation. That's a temporary thing anyway. Yeah. They're going to pay taxes. But they went three years paying no money on income taxes. The <laughs> second thing that goes on is it's possible to sell a house and not pay taxes on that as long as you're reinvesting the money in another property. Or multiple properties. Or you can sell multiple properties and buy one property with it. And it's called the 1031 exchange. Mm -hmm. But as long as you follow all the rules, you owe no capital gains on that sale. And the ultimate strategy is you just keep doing that until you die. And then when your heirs inherit it, their basis that they pay tax on is the value on the day of your death. So if they sell it on the day of your death, they owe no capital gains on it. Yeah, because inheritance is non-taxable. I think it's like $10 million per heir right now or something like that. Right. So, and, and again, like, so, and, and even then, it wouldn't be capital gains as well. It would just be the inheritance tax. So, I mean, to, to, to put numbers on it for people to get their head around it, let's say that uh, you were my dad. Mm -hmm. You kicked off. You left me a real estate portfolio valued at $8 million. It's under the death tax uh, uh, limit. I pay no tax on it. My my basis would lock in that my portfolio is worth $8 million on the day that I took ownership of it. Correct. If, and so if, 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 in that if same I situation, sold it right then for its value, I'd pay nothing. If five years later it's worth $12 million bucks and somebody walks in and goes, look, you don't want this. Here's a check for $12 million. I'd pay tax on $4 million capital gain. Correct. Okay. And, and again, maybe your father, the day before he died, if he had sold it, he might owe, you know, $3 million in taxes on all the gains he's had. Interesting. But you manage to avoid that by always, again, doing these 1031 exchanges and just keep holding on to it forever and ever and ever. Yeah, um, because eventually that has to be paid, right? It, again, it has to be paid whenever you do a non-1031 exchange. Yeah. Or, again, the way that it currently works is called a step-up in basis when you die. And that, I mean, that's the plan for lots of investors I know. So what you're saying is, let me make sure that everybody understands this. If it's my property and I decide I want out, then there's a there's a comeuppance due at the end when I exit based on all those exchanges I did in the past because I'm not staying in the game anymore. Exactly. If I inherit the property, that goes away. Exactly. Okay, so my heir does not get leveraged against 
the obligation that I incurred. Exactly. That's beautiful. I, that's something I did not know. And, and it works the same way with stocks. And the justification is you may have no idea what the basis your parents bought it at was. How would I know? I mean, again, like maybe there's – with a house, there's probably a record someplace with stocks. Yeah. There probably isn't. Yeah, especially if like my, my dad bought IBM in 1972. I, I don't Yeah, and, and so for any sort of property you invest, this is generally the way it works. Our exceptions, always consult an attorney before you mm-hmm. do anything or an accountant. But in general, this is the way it works for any inherited property. And it, it basically was even the government saying, well, nobody's going to know this. And if we tax them on the full value, like they're going to – they're going to go ahead shit. We're going to have a revolt. People are going to hang from freaking streetlights. Yeah. <laughs> so and the final tax advantage of having um, a real estate business is you have a business. Correct. So you can do everything else you can do with the, the business. If you have expenses for the business, you can write it off. You know, why do I have properties in Memphis? Well, partly because that makes sense, but partly because all my in-laws live in Memphis. Hmm. So every um, bit of travel I do to Memphis, I make sure it's a business trip. And I got to jump through the hoops to make sure it qualifies and everything. But we're going there for Christmas this year. My hotel, business expense. My mileage, business expense. My meals and my wife's meals, because she's my partner in the business, business expense. Correct. My kids' meals, not a business expense. Correct. But, you know, it, if this is, this is one of my favorite ways for, if like, you, let's say you're a super high wager, you're making. 250 grand a year, you don't want to start your own business, but you want to start getting some of those tax advantages from having a business. Buying real estate is buying a business. And you can start taking advantage of some of those things once you have a business. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, Yeah, I never really even thought about how that would work out for your heirs, but it makes perfect sense. This is the way I'll put it to you. All the people in government that make these laws and regulations they're they're multimillionaires, and if they're not, they quickly become such. <laughs> so if it's something that multimillionaires play with, it has built-in tax advantages because the people that write the laws build in tax advantages for all the stuff that they do with their money. And we're just, you know, as the Agoras tax advisor, we're just suggesting that maybe you should do that too. You know, like maybe you we should use, like I always say, like, 5% of the tax code is what you have to do, and 95% is how you get out of it. And I'm here to tell you, and I'm sure you'll agree with this, a shitload of the how you get out of it has to do with owning real estate or in some way investing, partaking in real estate. Yeah, I mean, I've and no one knows exactly what's in the tax code because no one's ever read the whole thing because it's impossible. But like conservatively, probably 10 to 15% of the, t- percent of the tax code is just about real estate. Mm. And well over half of it, probably three quarters of it at least, applies to businesses that can be real estate businesses. I got you. So maybe not specific, like the mileage deduction. That's not specific to real estate, but it applies to a real estate investor. Exactly. Got you. That makes sense. Let's let's take a few questions here. Uh, a lot from one person. Uh, but Mike from Tennessee says... Can you talk about formulas for leveraging one property to buy more? We kind of touched on that, but we didn't really dig into it. So, and, and this is not a thing that works great with current interest rates, but okay. I, I absolutely did this in 2020 when interest rates were stupidly low. So once you have one property, um, you can 
take a cash out refinance on the one property and that's tax free and use that money to buy another property. And so I had had the, the property I bought in 2015 and another one I bought in 2017, which both had 6% mortgages. Okay. I refinanced the two of them. I took out nearly $60,000 because interest rates had gone down and my credit had improved. The new interest rates were three and 0.75%. Okay. And I took that $60,000 and that's how I got into the second apartment complex investment I did. Okay. So a cash out refinance is one way to do it. Again, 1031 is another way where you can sell one property and it's not uncommon to maybe buy two or three properties with that one. And especially when you're trying to build up, you don't want to hold the property too long. At, at some point, it stops actually making you as much money because, again, that equity amount inside of it gets bigger usually. Um, oftentimes, expenses go up, etc. So, you know, getting out of your properties maybe at the 6 to 8 to 10 year mark and getting new ones or faster if it makes sense makes a lot of sense. Not to mention you have an equity build there. Beyond what you're paying down on the mortgage, you have an equity build from the underlying appreciation of the property. You're, Like you said, we're depreciating it on paper while it's appreciating in the real world. But things go wrong, too. Like One of the things I think we need to keep saying as a disclaimer here is uh, assess your risk well before you engage in any investment. Like Who could have sat in February of 2019? I'm a pretty good prognosticator, but... February 2018, even 2019, and forecast what was going to happen for a three-year period over something akin to a bad flu. Like, no one could see that coming, and we have no idea. Like, whatever, if you keep looking for the next COVID, whatever train wrecks everything next probably won't be anything like it. it there's, like, new things over and over again that cause these uh, issues. When you look back to 0809 the whole mortgage-backed security thing and all. But, you know, prior to that, we had things like savings and loan collapse, right? So there's, you never know what the next giant category five financial hurricane is going to be. Yeah. And, and again, like going into that, so the, I, I still am glad I invested in the, uh, the three apartment complexes I've invested in, but not a single one of them has paid me a penny since March of this year. That's what Basically, I was going to ask you. Because I've, so I've been part of LLPs and things like that where the cash flow is non-existent. So, and, and again, like all, one of them we bought in December of last year and we knew it was a fixture upper. So we weren't expecting to get anything until 2024 anyway. Uh, but the other two, just insurance has gone up. Property taxes have gone up. Rents have gone up by not by, by, not by as much. And basically for financial reasons, they just stopped doing the payouts to anybody for a while. Mm. Um, now, again, for me, that's annoying for one of my friends who is in 14 apartment complexes and doesn't have a day job anymore and was living off of that income. It's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. So now he, he was smart and he had a year's worth of living expenses in the bank because he knew this could happen. Yeah. But, you know, it's been nine months. And there's still no money. I, Aaron. I, three I, more months worth of money. And, and again, like he, he's, some of his are still paying out, so it's okay. not no income for him because he's got so many. Again, diversification. Yeah. Diversification. But so it's like he's not he's all with one entity either in that investment. So he's passive in the apartment complex, but not just more complexes, more entities. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And each of my investments is in a separate entity that owns one apartment complex. Got you. 
Gotcha. Yeah. Cause that's, it's kind of like holding a dividend paying stock, mm-hmm. right? And sometimes that company not necessarily is in the red, but their profits are thin enough that they, they, they vote to not pay a dividend that quarter or that annual. That happens. Yep. And that's the same. It, you got to look at it that way, I think, when you, when you get into that class of investment. But that's potentially, it, it, again, this is more dangerous than that because you can always sell the stock if you need the money. That's true. Selling your interest in these companies, it's usually tightly controlled. Like you first of all have to offer to other people in the group. Yeah. First um, right of refusal. There's lots of restrictions, including at least one of the contracts I've seen. Basically, you can't sell it for more than what you uh, bought it for. Mm. Um, unless everybody in the group refuses to pay you that price, then you can sell it outside the group for more. So if nobody that has absolute knowledge of the situation will pay you a price, you can sell it to somebody who doesn't have absolute knowledge for more. Yeah. Doesn't sound like there's a big market of people sitting out there waiting for that, that share. I, I've, I think I've heard of it happening once across hundreds of investors investing in hundreds of deals in, again, the group I work with. Makes me think of uh, Jim Carrey and Dumb and Dumber. So you're telling me there's a chance, right? <laughs> there's a chance, but it, and and again, like even if you want to do that, like this is not selling a stock when you got the money the next day. Like yeah. best case yeah. scenario, you're looking at probably four to six months. Okay. So again, if if you're like this is very much be ready to lose money if things go bad, and it like especially those sorts of deals. They can be glacially slow to turn course if you need to turn course. Individually. Yeah, especially when you're sitting there holding one percent. Because even if you have voting shares, it's meaningless, right? And, and, again, I, I have a vote, but also yeah, we have a you know vote. <laughs> wouldn't you know it? Like the the deal sponsors just between them have about thirty percent of it. Yeah. So to do anything they don't want to do, you got to get basically like 75% of the other people in, involved to go against them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're probably not going to do that. I've even seen deals like that where it's like they're, they're controlling like 45, 48%. And like, you're not, you know, you got to yeah. get a lot to, to move that in the opposite direction. Do you yeah. of these deals do that just because usually the reason that they're running the deal is they don't have all the money to put into it. Yeah. Um, but I, I again, I've seen forty percent a couple of times, and usually it's okay. at least thirty percent. Yeah, so you got to swing eleven percent of the total. Yeah, it's not happening, right? Like, because yeah. why would like if I don't want out, why would I let you out, right? Like, you know, exactly. And they they got the sunken sunken cost fallacy uh, sitting in that as well. And then a lot of times it's just like the person that wants out. It's not because the investment has suddenly become a bad long-term investment. They need capital. They need money for some reason. Yeah. And so everybody else is like, I got money. I'm willing to ride this horse to the end. Yeah, exactly. I think that's that's where that seems like the easy button, but maybe not as risk. Maybe it's more risk adverse in some ways. Uh, Mitchell says, what about foreclosures, taking advantage of those situations? I always thought that was a good idea until I tried to buy one. And I didn't even try to buy it as an investment. Like I needed a house and it seemed like it was during the 08, 09 implosion. And it was like, I could buy a house and, and, and it finally went, no, I don't want to deal with this. It was really like dealing with banks in that situation. Maybe it works for some people. It didn't work for me. Yeah. The, the problem is it's almost impossible to get a mortgage on a foreclosure 
to buy an auction because the bank can't do its due diligence on the property before the auction. The other yeah. problem is there aren't that many foreclosures right now. No. Again, because like we talked about, because, you know, interest rates are so low, like unless you bought in 2021 or 2022, like your cost of living someplace else is going to be way higher than living in the current home. So if you can possibly do it, like you'll lose your car before you lose your house in this sort of situation. Yeah. Um, it, but again, like if really the, the place that made a lot of sense in 07 and 08, and I was not an investor then, but I was again, studying it. Like it, you didn't, you didn't do the foreclosure. You tried to look for people who were headed towards this foreclosure. And then you bought them out before the foreclosure happened. That gave you the chance to do inspections, get a mortgage, um, et cetera. Um, so like in the right time, in the right place, that can work. And I, I mean, give it two or three more years. And I'm pretty sure there will be a lot of foreclosures on the market. Um, the other thing you can do is, again, it all depends on who you know. Once something's been foreclosed on, a lot of times the bank ends up owning it. And now the bank's got a problem because they've got this property that they've got to pay insurance on. They've got to pay taxes on it, and they're, it's, just a, it's just a money suck. So they're always looking for people to buy those properties, and I have, again, not recently, but one of the guys who I was learning from um, in, in 08, 09, he got some sweetheart mortgages to take property off their hands. Um, again, interest rates then were typically you know 7 8%. He got a 3% mortgage in 08 because he was buying a foreclosed unit from the bank that did the mortgage. Okay. So if they're willing to play ball, then that's, that's interesting. Um, Food Forest Farm says my brother buys foreclosures and fixes them. He does it inside his IRA. It's a long and arduous process, but he's paying it's effectively to the bank. He's paying cash. They don't give a shit where the money came from. So if exactly. you have a bankroll sitting in an IRA, then maybe that makes a little bit more sense. One of the things we need to tell people here is if you use your IRA to buy, sell, flip, manage real estate, that's all good. Well, you can't live there. You can't live there. Now, you, you can't, get live, there. You know, can't but... live there. Your parents can't live there. Their spouses can't live there. Mm. Or the IRA goes away and the IRS considers it 100. The whole IRA distributed the first day they do that. Mm. I know of a person who had an over million dollar IRA with an Airbnb in it. And they didn't know it, but their kid rented through the Airbnb. And the only reason that wasn't completely financially crushing was because they were at least already in their 60s. So they, they, they didn't have to pay any penalties. Uh-huh. They just had to pay the taxes. Okay. Uh, and they found out about it. They, the kid didn't know it was the parents either. The kid just left the review and the parents saw the review from their kid and was like, oh, shit. How did the government even find that? The government didn't find out about it. They voluntarily complied oh. on the chance that the IRS would have found it. Mm. Uh, and again, like I, I'm sure if they had been in their 50s and would be paying you know, a 10% penalty on top, maybe yeah. they would have tried to you know, yeah. do the equivalent of shoot, shovel, and shut up. Yeah. Um, but again, in this case, it, it hurt them. But they, again, they had to take money out anyway. Um. Yeah. So it definitely like it, IRAs and self-directed IRAs, they're like guns. 
They're incredibly yeah. powerful tools. And if you misuse them, you will kill yourself. Correct. Correct. And, and, and the more powerful a tool is when used improperly, the more dangerous it is to the user. That's exactly that's the thing. And a million dollars is a lot of power. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why I say if people have real problems in their life, don't give them money. If their problems are monetary, then if you give them money, you will make their problems worse. I know it sounds cruel, you know, and if somebody's sick and you can pay their medical bills, that's one thing. I'm talking about people who have legitimate, they cannot manage money and you give them money, they will hurt themselves. And that's why you get somebody like, you know, I think it was right that he won his case, but Rodney King, right? But where did he end up? Like it was like three or four years later, dead at the bottom of a swimming pool. Yeah, it almost certainly would have been better off having lost. Yeah, yeah. Even though it would have been wrong, it still would have been a better long-term result most likely. Or if he would have been awarded less money, so he didn't have as much power to kill himself as quickly as he did. Um, Do you run your rentals through an LLC or an S-Corp or what kind of entity? And I think in this case, we're not talking necessarily about your own. You have an ownership in like an apartment complex at 1%. I think he means more like if you are managing a rental property that you personally own, how are you holding it? So you don't ever want to hold real estate that's like passive real estate in any sort of a corporate taxation structure. Okay. Um, there's no benefit to it and there can be downsides. Okay. So never an S corp, never a C corp. Okay. An LLC won't give you any tax advantages. The advantages it will give you are asset protection. Okay. Um, so again, I, to me, this is personally, uh, my three properties in Memphis, I have in one LLC. That's based largely on the value of those properties. You know, if they were million dollar properties, they would each be in their own LLC. But since the three of them together are not worth half a million dollars and my equity in them is worth a lot less than that, I'm willing to have them in one entity. Um, but even then, your primary asset protection is your insurance. Okay. Um, so, like, it, I'll be honest. I didn't bother setting up an LLC until I had the third property. And probably that was just the cost of maintaining the LLC was going to eat into my profits too much. You know, having that LLC, it costs money every year, almost every state. It may open you up to business taxation as well. So personally, I do like holding them in an LLC for asset protection reasons, especially like if you've got 50 or 60 grand in equity and in, in, you probably want to protect that, you know, must be nice. You know, one of these properties I bought for $67,000. Yeah. Even with closing costs, I was in less than 20 grand. Okay. I, I wasn't going to bother worrying about that from an asset protection standpoint on the off chance that my insurance wasn't enough money to save. Me. Yeah. Now, I if I was self-managing them. Think, yeah, go ahead. I'll say if I was self-managing them, my liabilities may be a little bit higher and like if I hire a contractor who does something, I don't want to get sued. So I probably would have done it. I got you. So you have this other entity doing the management that is their own business entity that assumes some of the liability in such. Correct. Whereas if you're self-managing, it all falls back to you, even if you hire a contractor because they're working under you. Correct. Like maybe you were negligent in hiring that contractor. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I think one of the things that people get confused about is they think, well, if I form an LLC, all of a sudden my entire tax situation changes. There's, I can't think, maybe you're a lawyer, you do this for a living, you may be able to think of an exception here. I don't know of anything that if it's legitimately deductible as a business expense, that I can't deduct as a sole proprietor that I could if I was doing it as an LLC because the income is passed through. Um, 
it does make things a little bit easier to manage, I think, when you have multiple parties in ownership on some level. But as far as a straight up, is this a deductible legitimate business expense, sole proprietor LLC, it's, it's pretty much the same. I, I can't think of a single difference, honestly, um, assuming you don't change the taxation of the LLC, which you can do, which is mm-hmm. one of the advantages. And by the way, if I were investing with anybody else other than a spouse, absolutely LLC. Correct. Like, no question. Correct. You, you, once, once you're in, like, you don't want to be partners. Being partnership as an entity and taxed as a partner almost always sucks. Yeah. Well, and like, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this too. A partnership, you and I are partners. You can go specifically create obligations that I'm part of without my knowledge. Correct. And in an LLC, we have an operating agreement and it might simply say, you can't do that. Right. That alone, like we have a, a managing partner or what have you. Um, and, and stipulation about like, even like if it's multiple parties, like a managing partner may have in the articles of incorporation, you can do things up to this level. And anything beyond this requires approval of other members or something like that, where I guess and, you and could draft a, a contract like that as a partnership, but I don't know that it would really hold water. It, it, it wouldn't because the, par- the, the contract only binds the partners. And again, mm-hmm. the LLC, it's a corporate veil. So somebody could completely take everything in the LLC potentially, but unless you did something personally wrong, they're not going to get through the LLC to you unless you do a couple of things, which don't do those things. Don't do those things. And that's a different show. Probably. Um, this is when I, I, I find this funny and I don't want to pick on Hunter here, but why does rent go up every year? Why does the prices of anything go up every year? Do you think if I own a property that my cost of management goes down while your cost of living goes up? I mean, there's an underlying, first of all, it's because I can, Right. I want to increase my cash flow. But there's another like the other side of it, like my insurance is going to probably go up annually. Uh, my cost of maintenance is going to go up annually it, when, you know, I, I just I just had to write a check for about ten thousand dollars because my air conditioner needed to go. I mean, it, we could have kept it running, but it was one of those things like you can pay sixteen hundred bucks and it might last another year or two or you can pay ten grand. and It's going to last 15 years. Well, I'm going to I'm going to take the second option there. Right. So. Like if I have to put in an HVAC system and you, and you, my tenant's going to expect that, right? Mm-hmm. They're not going to keep paying me rent if their air conditioning doesn't work. Yeah. So it's insurance goes up, property taxes go up, but ultimately that, that doesn't really affect the rent because the rent is what the market will bear. Yeah. I mean, there have been times rents have gone down because the market sucks. Yeah. Um, but inflation, pushing up the cost of everything is definitely pushing up rent. The other thing that's happening is statistically, you live in a place where people are moving to. Yes. And so th- there's and more does, people by moving the way, he's in. Local and to that, us. He's local to us. And, and, and so it's like that, those extra people coming in, well, there aren't, you know, there, it's something like, I don't know, I think it, it, they're expecting something like 100,000 people to move into the DFW Metroplex in the next decade if not more than that. They're not going to build 100,000 new houses, or even let's say it's three per household. They're not going to build 33,000 more. So there's you know, more people who want those nice places, or there's people who, you know, well, I'll pay less. I'll live out in Frisco. I'll live out in Prosper, yeah. which is going to be the next Frisco. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. you know, I'll live out in Saginaw instead of, you know, closer to town because it's, it's further out, but it's cheaper. 
you know, more people want to live in downtown areas or not downtown, downtown, but, you know, close to downtown. Close to work, right? You know, yeah. Close to work, close to entertainment, close to whatever. Well, all those people moving into an area, that's a big part of why rent's going up. And I'll tell you, if you're renting, you're probably still doing better off by not moving. Like, I mean, on one of my tenants, I I raised the rent by about a hundred bucks on my tenant last uh, year on one of them. But honestly, the market rent's probably $300 higher than what he was paying. But yeah. he, I, I know him. He's been a good tenant. If I raise his rent by 300 bucks, he might move out. Raising his rent by $100, he's not happy. But And in fact, he gave his notice to move out. And four days later, he called back and said, can I still stay? Because he went out and he couldn't find anything for the same price. I was going to charge him at the new rent. That was even close to as nice. Yeah. So, like, again, like, yes, your rent's going to go up every single year. But it probably, if you've been there for a couple years, it's probably not the market rent anymore. If you own a house, the cost of your housing is going to go up every year, too. That's true. Yeah. Maybe every other year, really, because that's usually when you get your property tax hikes is about every other year. But um, it's going to cost more to live. People say that, you know, you lock in a rate. Well, you lock in principal and interest. Yeah. You do not lock in the cost of housing. I think ownership is a better course if you can make it work maybe not right now but long term horizon that goal of property ownership i think is a good goal that people should have um but you don't think that just because you bought your house you lock your price forever now there is advantages if you buy at the right time like we're sitting on that like i said right now like if somebody were to buy a house and piece of property exactly like mine right now they're going to pay two to two thousand ish dollars a month more than I do. That's just reality, right? So, but that could be the case if somebody bought that in ten years from now. We you just don't know. Now, I I don't think this is a prime buyer's market at all right now, but I think one's coming. That's my gut, anyway. You know, I honestly I'm surprised it hasn't come already, and I think part of that actually was COVID. I think we probably would have had a bit of a crash in 2020, but so many people were trying to buy bigger places because they're stuck at home and all that sort of stuff. And also so much remote work is happening. So people could move places they wanted to live instead of staying where they were. Yeah. And then there was the, the stimulus checks that gave people more money. So I, I know some people qualified, you know, for a down payment or maybe they couldn't have before from that extra bit of money. So again, I, I I'm shocked it hasn't happened yet. But I mean, honestly, like I got an email yesterday from one of the apartment groups. And if I had the money, I would absolutely invest in this deal. Like they're in the right place at the right time. And, you know, in their case, they're buying from a distressed seller, somebody who bought it two years ago and Mm. had an adjustable rate mortgage on their apartment complex that has gone up like quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And it's like there's deals out there. There aren't many but there's, there's deals out there. Deals. There's always deals in the worst market. There's deals, mm-hmm. you know, that's just always deals. It doesn't mean that you're going to find it, but it's, it's there. If you look hard enough, uh, last one is depreciation deductible in all situations. It's sort of, um, sort of so you don't, depends. you don't have depreciation on land. Only things that wear out, have depreciation. So like if you have a raw land buying, you'll never get depreciation. Um, that said, um, 
if you have a property that's an investment property and it, it has to be for a business, only businesses can depreciate things, you can depreciate that from your income. Now, if you're negative, you may not be able to use that negative someplace else that year. You know, if, if you, uh, you know, on paper, you're down $5,000 um, because of the depreciation, you can't necessarily deduct that full $5,000 from your day job income without jumping through some extra steps, but you don't lose it. Like yeah. you can use some of it and what you don't use, it'll be there the next year and the next year and the next year. So you'll get it eventually or you'll sell the property and you'll, you'll realize it then. So from that standpoint, yes. And in fact, the IRS does say you are required to do depreciation. Even if you don't do the depreciation, your basis goes down the same in any way. So there literally is no financial benefit to not taking that depreciation. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I can't think of one. So Matt, I know you don't have a, how to get rich quick in real estate course, but you do help people with tax planning and things like that. You want to tell folks how they can learn more about you and work with you? Yep. So I've got uh, on my website, uh, agoristaxadvice.com, A-G-O-R-I-S-T, taxadvice.com, and then slash the survival podcast. And I've got a free download that it's basically a whole bunch of deductions. It's got about five or six personal deductions and over 60 different business deductions. And that is literally because so many business people just don't know what they're missing. Like there's so many things you can take as a business expense if you just knew about it. So go there, free download. You'll get on my email list. I send it out usually once a week, sometimes twice a week. Uh, Nicole Sauce loves it, says it's you know useful information to her. Um, and uh, again, you just kind of get to be part of my community and can keep learning stuff. And again, start that education because even if you want to just do real estate, you need to know the tax side of it too. Excellent. I'm going to bring that up for people real quick so they can see uh, the page that you're talking about. And I will add that to the show notes for everybody. And I'll let folks know that if you're watching us live right now, it'll be about 30 minutes from this minute. If you're watching this in the future, probably already there. There's a link in the video notes below that'll get you on over to the audio version of the podcast, embedded video, all that good stuff. And all of Matt's links including his social media stuff and as well uh, are available in today's show notes. So you should definitely sign up for this because uh, you, you're not being asked for anything other than your email address and you're learning about money that you're leaving on the table. And, and I, I don't know about you. I think I do know about you. Like I think both of us probably would agree. We detest the idea of leaving money on the table in any situation. But if you're living it on the table for the government, it's a special kind of hatred. Like it's one thing if I didn't make money, I could have made, but if I'm giving the state money, I didn't have to give them to me. That is like, I'd rather set my money on fire than give it to the state. I, 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 hate, I mean, to be blunt, if I had a legal option, you owe the United States government $61,000 this year. But if you put it in a pile, throw gasoline on it and burn it, you don't owe them the money you're out the same amount of money. I would burn the money. I, I talk to a lot of my clients. Like if I could spend $5,000 and avoid $5,000 in taxes, I'd do it. I might even spend $5,500 to avoid $5,000 in taxes just because I hate the government so much. <laughs> I wouldn't 
spend thirty thousand dollars to avoid five thousand dollars. No, I agree. Like, I'm not I stupid. Agree. But it was like eh, a couple hundred bucks, but I help somebody else out. Sure, I'll do it. I totally agree with that. I totally agree. And, and I, I know people like keep waiting. You're like, I do, do you get me the deal with the IRS and I will burn it on live video, right? If no other reason, they made the deal and I want proof I did it. I will burn stat. You pick the denominations, fives, tens, twenties, whatever you want. I will set that shit on fire before I will give it to them. So don't leave money on the table for the government. Again, I'll have Matt's links for you in the show notes today. Thank you for being with us today, man. Thank you. All right, guys, real quick before we uh, sign off, I want to let you guys know about one way that you can support me in the work that I do. And that's just do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Do your shopping there. And no matter what you buy, you will help us out and the work that we do. Today's item of the day was actually the best-selling item last year in December. I just thought, what am I going to run today? You know, And so I looked up my records. What sold? What did I sell the most of in December last year? It was the STX 3000 Turbo Force Meat Grinder. Yep, the meat grinder. I, I'll tell you, we talked about keeping money in your pockets versus the government's pockets some of the day. Another way to keep more money in your pocket is to spend less money. And if you've gone out and you've looked at what food's selling for today, it's ridiculous. And we've talked about this before, but one way to save money is to buy larger subprimals and break them down. If you do that real quick, you're going to figure out, hey, there's a lot of this stuff that really doesn't work that great as a steak or a roast or whatever. It's called trim. You throw that trim in here and you're getting way better quality ground meat than you would get otherwise. Also, if you are a hunter, uh, you probably have meat that needs grinding. That pays for itself as well. And if you're raising your own livestock, I don't do a lot of grinding of chicken or duck, but if you're raising goat or something like that, and some people do grind chicken and other poultry as well. Like these are all good reasons to have a meat grinder. Now, why the STX 3000 Turbo Force? Because I went out and decided what, what is the best meat grinder I can get my hands on without like buying something that belongs in a commercial butcher shop. And the answer was not the STX. It was a Cabela's carnivore and it was about $600. And I thought I don't need a $600 meat grinder. I need a really good meat grinder. So I found the best meat grinder on the market under 200 bucks. And it's this one. And it pretty much as embarrasses everything else in its class. As far as I'm concerned, you put meat through it about as fast as you can shove it in there. As long as you trim things right it just works really great. Now, I'm going to say this. This is kind of like meat grinding 101 class. You need to trim the silver skin off your meat because it wraps around the screw if you don't. So don't do that. And you want your meat cold, like almost frozen. So cube your meat up, throw it in the deep freezer, par freeze it. It will grind so much better for you. And I go as far as this. I take the screw, the blade, the plate, and the housing, and I throw that in the freezer for a little bit before I go ahead and, and do my grinding to keep everything cold. I also keep some ice around and throw a little bit of ice in it once in a while to cool it back down. And then that's another little hack, right? So when you're done grinding and you have a little bit of meat left in there, throw a, a small handful of ice cubes in there and the ice will push the last of the meat out and actually grind it so you're not pulling out big hunks off of your grinding screw. But I got something else for you this time. So, one of the things that was not available with this wasn't as a package when I first bought it. 
they now have, and that is a foot switch. So this is not the one that comes with it. This is an aftermarket foot switch. But if you buy the $10 more expensive package with this grinder, they will include a foot switch. If you already have an electric grinder you're very happy with, this is a big upgrade. This is something I did for myself when I bought mine. It's 15 bucks. You basically plug it into the wall, and then you plug something else into it. And it, it will work for a grinder, but it will work for anything electric. And all it is is on and off, on and off. So as long as the device is left on, you can turn it on and off with your foot. Why would you want to do this with a grinder? Because when you're grinding meat, you have, like, blood and pieces of fat and goo all over your hands, and it just makes cleanup harder. So you keep your meat goo off of your grinder housing by having the ability to use your foot. If you have an electric sausage stuffer or you're using the sausage stuffing function of an electric grinder, this is money because it lets you work all by yourself. It's like a sewing machine. you got a foot on, foot off. Beautiful thing, 15 bucks. So if you already own this grinder or another one you're happy with, do consider checking out the write-up today anyway. Check in the PS, and you'll, you'll learn more about that option or the ability to get a foot switch for your existing equipment. And with that, I want to go ahead and wrap up. Thank you guys for tuning in today. Hope this was a, a good episode for you and opens up your mind to other opportunities. Like Matt and I said, it is really the case that there aren't as many great deals right now as there were in the past. There's always deals if you look hard enough, but sooner or later, there's going to be deals. And you know what's not expensive in this place? Education. Start Start window shopping. If you want to get into this, big thing, start window shopping properties, start making connections, go to meetups and things like that, and start saving up your capital. Uh, I, I'm in agreement with Matt. I don't want to buy paid-for cash real estate as an investment. I think it's a poor ROI on my equity. I really do. But you need capital to go into these deals. Don't believe these late-night assholes. You can do it all. No money. It's bullshit. Anyway, with that, hope you enjoyed today's show. Tomorrow will be an expert council Q&A. And I've got a very special Friday flashback coming for you Friday. Take care, guys. I'll catch you tomorrow with another episode. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you'll...